Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. All right. Well, welcome everyone to the Bridgeway Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We are continuing our series on how to read the Bible. We have covered all different types of genre from wisdom to narrative to prophets uh, to law texts. And now we're going to be turning our attention to the New Testament. And uh, we're going to talk about the Gospels um, as um, our second to last genre. And then uh, next week, we'll finish with the Epistles, how to read the Epistles. And that'll conclude our series. So Sam, we're glad you're here to talk to us about the Gospels. I'm excited about this one. Well, it's good to be here. This ought to be fascinating. Yeah. I look forward to what you have to say. I know. It's going to be, it's going to be <laughs> enthralling. Um, what, I, wonder, I wonder if there's a different kind of minefield with talking about a New Testament genre as opposed to an Old Testament genre. We're kind of been in the Old Testament where maybe people are less familiar and people have, have maybe less formed opinions about certain parts of the Bible. They seem more enigmatic. And maybe now in the New Testament with more familiar books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yeah. people have more formed opinions. Uh, I don't know if that's like going to take more like some more detraining and then retraining or um, if it'll work to our advantage. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I think a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, as we move into the New Testament, and that is the fact that it's new. Uh, it's the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And the, the the challenge of the Gospels, perhaps more so than a challenge with any of the other genres, is that there is a measure of overlap. Uh, so many of the things that Jesus said and did, we need to remember he was saying and doing under the terms of the old covenant. Mm. And um, so you have to ask the question, well, because he endorsed that practice or he made this exhortation, does that mean that it's binding on us today. And those are those are challenging questions. We probably won't be able to get into that, yeah. but that's difficult. And then the simple fact, as we've talked about before, uh, once you move into the documents of the new covenant, you're moving from um, preparation and prophecy to fulfillment mm. and consummation. And so there's a whole different uh, mindset. Um, you know, we've talked about um, Richard Hayes' book, Reading Backwards, yeah. <clears throat> which is so very, very good. And that is, he says, when you come in, and he has, in fact, an entire book just on the Gospels. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's about three or four times as big as, as that little <laughs> reading backwards one in which he talks about how the Gospel authors were reading backwards and seeing from their perspective of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus what those Old Testament texts meant mm-hmm. in their broader canonical context. And, and I think that's one of the... You know, we talked. I, I don't want to repeat ground here or go back, but I, I, it is important enough to say this again. I think this may be the single greatest shortcoming in the average evangelical Christian's approach to the Bible hmm. is that they tend to read uh, the Old Testament as if the New had never been given. Right. Or they read the Old Testament as if it were the final word on God's purposes, and they don't see it in light of the fulfillment of Christ. So coming into the Gospels, we come into a whole new world 
Um, so I don't know where you want to go with this. I had some thoughts. Yeah, I definitely have. I definitely have some thoughts too. Um, you you brought up a few more with this little yeah. introduction here um, that it, I want to kind of address because they're broad. Yeah, they're really broad. Um, one is people. Uh, I I, t- I think I've seen people kind of fall on one one of two sides of the horse, um, if you will. Uh, and the one side is to take Jesus's words in the Gospels as uh, higher in quality and authority than the words of the epistles and especially the Old Testament. Yeah, so you could be a red-letter Christian, right? Exactly, right. Um, So, like, help... And, I I mean, this is a very sensitive subject. I mean, there there are people that I'm close friends with even right now, and Mm -hmm. if they're listening to this, they know we've had this conversation many times, so they know that I'm thinking about them. I mean, what what, what should we be thinking about when it comes to this climax of Jesus finally being on the yeah. scene, does it somehow stand above head and shoulders the rest of the revealed inspired word of God, or is it on the same plane? How do we think about that? It is on the same plane, quite simply. Um, and I, under- I understand the motivation behind yep. the whole red-letter Christian idea, because we're talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul isn't Jesus. John isn't Jesus. Peter isn't Jesus. <laughs> right. uh, they aren't the, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. So certainly we, um, we have a natural instinctive and I think justifiable um, bent toward listening uh, with maybe a little more attentiveness whenever our Lord speaks. Mm-hmm. But Jesus himself made it very clear you know, in the uh, upper room discourse when he told them that the Spirit of God whom he is about to send would bring to remembrance all the things that he had taught. And um, very clearly, when you read Paul and uh, the other writers of the New Testament, they are uh, they oftentimes will uh, reference the life of Jesus and give as an example uh, how he lived. But we, we, have to, we have to give full weight to 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture mm-hmm. uh, is God-breathed, and especially when Peter, in Second Peter 3, uh, links Paul's writings with Scripture itself. And I, think he, I, am, I may be off here, but I think Peter references a text in Luke, mm. if I'm not mistaken. I think you might be right. And then says, and uh, they twist, also the twist Paul. Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he puts Paul's writings on the level of the Gospel of Luke. So, uh, no, we can't. We can't create a hierarchy of value or importance. Certainly, we have to create, we don't want to flatten Scripture out. Right. There are stages and developments, and Scripture builds upon itself in in terms of, you know, you know, a lot in the Old Testament is, is kind of seed form. Mm-hmm. And then as you progress through uh, the Old Testament and the, and the establishment of Israel and uh, the exile and then the coming of Jesus, you see the, the flower fully developing. Mm-hmm. And we have, to, we have to see it in that light. There is movement within Scripture, but that, it's not movement from the less important to the more important. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really helpful. Uh, I mean, two <laughs> observations I would make about this topic that I just thought of while you were talking. One, one is um, when, 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 you, when we want to lean in and listen to the words of our Lord, as you said, mm-hmm. I was like, well, we can do that too in the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord. We can lean sure. in, you know. And I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of like if you were picking up a novel and uh, some parts might be descriptive of a, of a scene, and you're you're seeing you're like he's talking about how the light comes in a window. Maybe that's not as grabbing as the the scene of conflict and the height of the plot, but it's still the same author. You yeah, know? Uh, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Here, to me. Here's another thing, and this will probably really stir up some people, <laughs> maybe even stir up you, David. All right, let's I, see. I honestly believe, and I'm, and I'm trying not to pass judgment on this, 
But I think that a lot of people who want to elevate the words of Jesus above those of Paul do so for other than theological reasons. Mm. In other words, I think sometimes there's a political and social motivation because Jesus is, and rightly so in certain respects, viewed as this itinerant, I don't have a home, I don't have any money, I'm here to challenge the ethical standards of the established religion of the Pharisees. And so he really, uh, people who are much more uh, politically active and perhaps, again, uh, sorry if I'm mischaracterizing people, maybe if they're a little bit more on the progressive left-leaning side, uh, they see much more appeal in Jesus than they do in Paul and Peter because Mm -hmm. Paul and Peter are writing to established local churches. And so Christianity has become more, uh, more stable they're preparing for the long haul, as it were, and Jesus was seemed to be so much more intense about the urgency of the time. And so I, I can see that there might be a motivation beyond just um, theological in nature and more even uh, in, in line with a person's particular political or social uh, mindset. Definitely. I think that often when I see people wanting to elevate the Gospels above Paul— it's not to prove a theological point at all. It's always to prove more of a practical point, like how we should be living or how we should be going about doing evangelism or what ministry should look like or what what our relationship with our neighbors should look like. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and Jesus seems to be much more given toward breaking down established um, social barriers, whether mm-hmm. it's with races or with rich and poor and um, the genders. And, and so I think a lot of people... That resonates with them in our present day more than than Paul does in Romans, writing about justification and predestination, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although Paul definitely talks about uh, oh, ra- yeah race and, sure. and gender divides and, oh, and how Jesus heals those. So I think that's really helpful. The other side I see that people um, fall the other side of the horse to get back to that was is when people kind of tend to downplay what Jesus did in the Gospels because the cross event hasn't happened oh, yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is more the dispensational perspective. Yes. Oh, yeah, I I was at Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, I don't think that there's anybody teaching there now who would advocate this, but I had several professors whom I love and respect. I think most, if not all of them, are now with the Lord, mm-hmm. so I could say jokingly they know better. Um, of course, I could be wrong. Who knows? Maybe they know better, and <laughs> right. I, or I, well, whatever. And and they would. Uh, some of them would contend that the Sermon on the Mount is not designed for Christians. Yes, that it's an Old Testament ethic that was pre-cross. Um, now, like I said a minute, moment ago, are there certain elements in the teaching of Jesus that, because they were uh, living under the dictates of the Old Covenant? are not immediately and more directly applicable to us than others? And the answer to that is yes. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's not a blanket where you can fit everything into one category. You have to be very discerning, very careful, and, le- and, and look at the context very clearly. Um, and and you, I don't think it's that difficult to discern. But yeah, that is, a, that is sometimes a feature of the, what I would call the old classical dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not the perspective of what we might call the more progressive dispensationalists. Yeah, and I mean, I've even seen it outside of strictly dispensational circles. When uh, the, the worst version of it I've seen is um, whenever I was debating with people about the necessity of regenerative baptism. Mm-hmm. And so you must be baptized 
in the name of Jesus in order to be saved. And until you do, it, it's not you're not saved. Right. And um, you know, oftentimes people to argue back would look at the thief on the cross and say he wasn't baptized, and yet God Jesus says to him, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. And their argument is, well, he hasn't died yet, and so the new covenant hasn't come into full effect yet. And so that I mean, it's just kind of this weird which, which side of the cross are we on? Which makes of, it sound if you push them that there are two uh, standards of salvation, one that is dictated by Moses and the other by the New Covenant. Of course, that's abs- that's borderline heresy. There's mm-hmm. only one. Salvation is in every age under every covenant by grace alone through faith alone. Yep, absolutely. So let me make a suggestion, Yep, and then you can go wherever you want to with this. I think it might be helpful for us to talk just a couple of minutes about the nature of the Gospels, when, we, when they were written, mm-hmm. why they were written, why they differ. Because I think yeah. a, a lot of Christians don't understand that. So just a couple of, and again, I'm giving my perspective on this. The, the, there are people who would differ, but I think the, I'm probably going to be a pretty much mainline evangelical point of view. We talk about the synoptic gospels and people say, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it, it means see, to, it means literally means to see together with. It means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a whole lot of features that are very common. They're very, they overlap. They share the same stories. Um, as over against John's gospel, which is a, a largely of a different orientation, and I'll talk about why in just a moment. Um, in my view, um, I believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, some people want to put Matthew later, even Luke later, but I, I personally think they were all three written pre-70. I think John was written post-70. Um, the, the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke devote huge portions of their gospels to the impending destruction of the temple. And John doesn't say anything about it mm-hmm. other than Jesus's statement in John two about tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. Of course, he was talking about his body. Mm-hmm. Um, mo- I- I'm, I'm the conviction. Some people think this is really overly technical and scholarly, but it is important at times. I think Mark was probably written first. I happen yeah. to hold to the Mark and priority view. And that Matthew and Luke both drew from Mark. They had Mark in front of them and were able to. And and so scholars say, why is it that Matthew and Luke seem to tell so many of the same stories? And I think it's because they're drawing from a common source, Mark. Mm -hmm. And that Mark, uh, obviously, if he wrote first, did not have Matthew and Luke, but he had what scholars call Q. Right. (laughs) And if you all have never heard of Q, this is not. Uh, you know, the uh, guy in the James Bond movies who gives him all of his gadgets. (laughs) (laughs) A Q branch, you know. Yep. Show him his new Aston Martin or a fancy gun or whatever, or a briefcase with who knows what in it. (laughs) Um, Q uh, is based on a German word that means source. And the idea among many scholars is that there was another source circulating in that time by the way, no, we we do not have it. No, nope. it does. It, it, it there are no manuscripts that we would identify as being Q, but these were sayings of Jesus and events in the life of Jesus uh, that were circulating that Mark drew from, but that Matthew and Luke did not. And so this is kind of how most scholars view the Gospels as being formed and put together. Um, I think you know another big question is the question, are, are we reading biographies of Jesus? Right. Um, for many, many years, really up until about the last 10 or 15 years, most scholars said no. Mm. They said these are not biographies. But um, 
in recent years, there's been a shift. In fact, Craig Keener has a new book coming out. I think it's called Christobiography or something oh, okay. like that, in which he argues that, that in fact, we can see um, a lot of similarities between the kind of biographies that were existent back in that day and what we see in the Gospels. Uh, the difference is, is that um, many of those biographies that were written in the in past times included a lot of uh, allegory and uh, and just stories that were made up that weren't rooted in reality and history. But we believe the gospels are rooted in reality. They are portrayals of the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I, we may have talked about this uh, in a previous episode. I can't remember, but it's worth remembering. You go into Barnes and Noble, for example, and they have a massive section on biography. And you expect when you pick those up to be given a chronological account. Now, some of them will turn it around a little bit, but most of them start out by, you know, where was this person born? Who were his ancestors? What kind of place did he live in? Uh, who were the influences on his or her life? And then they give a kind of a straightforward uh, a chronological account of their life from birth to death. Um, that's not always what we see in the Gospels. Now, granted, they end, they all for end with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But oftentimes they will, for their own purposes, shift material. They'll, they'll arrange the, the, the things that Jesus said and did topically or theologically rather than chronologically. Mm-hmm. And this throws some Christians. So they'll sit down and they'll read, well, why does, you know, why does uh, Luke insert the genealogy of Jesus in between his baptism by John and his going into the wilderness? Well, when you study Luke, you realize there's a very re- good reason for that. Why does Matthew put the genealogy in the very opening chapter of chapter 1? So it's important to remember when you read the Gospels that they aren't always trying to be chronologically precise. Uh, some They will sometimes summarize episodes. So here, here's a classic example of this. Um, uh, I don't know when this podcast is going to be released, but I'm getting ready to preach from John 6, uh, on the uh, the story of Jesus walking on the water. Mm-hmm. Well, you read John 6, verses 16 through 21. It's a very short story, just five, six verses. Um, and he leaves out a whole lot that you'll find in greater detail in Mark and Matthew. Now, Luke doesn't even have the story. Right. Luke just, he, I mean, you think an event like that, <laughs> Luke doesn't even mention it. Well, on the other hand, you know, Matthew and Luke record the Sermon on the Mount, and Mark and John don't. Right. You know, John records 14 through 17, this, this, this high priestly, incredible section of Scripture and the prayer in chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but getting back to the walking on the water, you go to um, Matthew's gospel. He has the longest portrayal of it. In fact, I'm going to use Matthew's text to preach on this rather than John's because he has so much more detail. And also because Matthew includes Peter walking on the water. Mm-hmm. Mark and John don't. And I and I, I was asking myself the question, well, no, wait a second. If Mark was the disciple of Peter, which most believe, right. and he was writing from Peter's perspective, it's interesting that he did not include the story of Peter walking on the water yes. to Jesus. And I, I've wondered why. And I wonder, did Peter ask him not to? <laughs> I mean, seriously, because yeah. it starts out good, but it ends bad. Right. You know, And Peter's the object of this rebuke of Jesus, uh, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And he sinks <laughs> until Jesus rescues him. And you wonder, uh, that's a very human 
element that, that, that God used in his sovereignty to factor into what was actually included or omitted from one of the gospel records. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have, you know, I preached not long ago on the feeding of the 5,000. Yes. In John's gospel. Um, well, it's the only miracle that's found in all four gospels. Mm-hmm. Uh, John doesn't talk about the feeding of the 4,000, Matthew and Mark do. Um, so they were selective in which stories they told. They were uh, selective in how much they recorded. Sometimes they did it compressed. Sometimes they gave more longer and more elaborate uh, portrayals. And I, the reason I'm emphasizing all this is because when people read the Gospels and they don't understand why there are certain things in one of the Gospels but not in the others and why they portray it in slightly different terms. Now, different does not mean contradictory. Mm-hmm. People need to remember that. Uh, I believe that they're all consistent with one another, but uh, it, it's the it's the difference of perspective. You know, you got to remember another thing. Most again, this is disputed by some, but most believe that Matthew was writing for a pr- predominantly Jewish audience mm-hmm. uh, to try to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah, and he quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again. Luke was probably written to a Gentile audience, and so he'll change some language and adapt it to the people that he thinks is are going to be reading his uh, his. Uh, story of Jesus. Um, Mark writes in rapid fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark is very, uh, very fast. It, you keep reading this word immediately and immediately and immediately and immediately. And it's like he's racing to the cross. Mm-hmm. So why do they do that? Well, because they have a theological purpose in view. Yes. And so they are, they are honing in on like a laser on certain things that serve their theological purpose, or best suited to the audience to whom they are writing. So those are just some of the little details that it's important to keep in mind when you read the Gospels. Otherwise, you'll come out scratching your head and maybe concluding that they that they aren't consistent with each other. Yeah, I think all that's super helpful to keep in mind. And it's things that um, I, I mean, you know, I had to go to school to learn <laughs> and didn't, uh, that should be Things that are walked through for us, I think, from a you know any of us who engage with the Gospels, we end up running into these walls of wait, hold on, I I thought this happened here, you know, like you know you 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 even brought it up from the pulpit, like why is the uh, clearing of the temple front loaded in John and back loaded in the Synoptics, yeah. you know, and so it's uh I think I think it's helpful to know that there is a different standard of modern biography versus ancient biography, yeah. and that standard doesn't mean less accurate. Right. It just means different approach. Right. By the way, I think I misspoke. Mm. If, if I'm not mis- I have to go back. I think I said that Mark utilized Q. I think it's Matthew and Luke that made use of Q. To fill in the gaps that to they didn't it. get from Mark. Yeah. The, yeah. So the, the, in other words, scholars say, how do we account for the parallels the overlap between Matthew and Luke that are absent from Mark. And that's the idea scholars have. That yes, that's They right. were drawing from this hypothetical source. That's right. So I just wanted to cover my bases before we get a lot of emails <laughs> about how I made a, a mistake. In I hope, regard. I hope there's some people smart enough to catch that mistake who listen oh, to this yeah. podcast. That yeah. would be, I would be honored to get that email. <laughs> but, I mean, but I mean, you think it, it really is interesting. Why is it in John's gospel, there are no parables? Yeah. I mean, they form such a crucial part of of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we, we it's hard to even think about Jesus's ministry without the parables. Or then you have, um, and again, this can be overblown, but I'm just talking about degrees of emphasis. Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to focus more on the humanity of Jesus. Mm. John doesn't deny it, 
but he, I mean, he says the word became flesh. Yeah. And but, he was hungry in John 4. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there's moments. Yeah. But he, um, he focuses more on the deity of Christ Definitely. and this intimate relationship between father and son. Mm-hmm. So when you keep in mind, um, when John wrote the purpose for which he was writing, um, as over against Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you won't be bothered by some of the seeming differences that, that, that crop up in your reading of Scripture. Yeah, I think that's great. Okay, so we've kind of talked about reading the Gospels comparatively, kind of reading them uh, horizontally, as I've heard it described in some books, reading the, reading the Gospels kind of through, um, side by side. Let's, let's talk about reading them kind of vertically now, uh, individually, and, and how to engage with some of the different genre within the genre here, because we have parables, we have miracles, narratives, we have prophecies, mm-hmm. uh, we have fulfillment texts quoting lots of the Old Testament, whether alluding to it or quoting it directly. Uh, so there's a lot of different uh, tools that the gospel writers use to tell this story. So it's not like we're just reading one style throughout. Exactly. And so maybe maybe help us understand uh, good ways to navigate through um, a, a, a one book that holds so many different genres in it. Yeah, that's a tough one to answer. I, I think probably going back and listening to the previous podcast mm-hmm. yep. on the variety of genre will help you. So just thinking through Matthew, for example, um, you know, you read these, the opening chapter of this genealogy of Jesus and you think, what? What's the, I mean, what's the point of this? But when you realize how it's structured, mm-hmm. it is structured very clearly in order to demonstrate that Jesus is the consummate uh, embodiment and the fulfillment of who David was. He mm-hmm. is the true son of David, the king. Um, and then you come into uh, um, just trying to think, um, you know, obviously the Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 um, which then moves into a lot of the miracle stories, a lot of the healings in chapter eight, um, the uh, sending the, of the twelve. Yeah, after that. The, the parables the in chapter thirteen. I think it's in chapter thirteen. 13. Yeah, all the law, yeah, the the treasure hidden in the field, yeah. and all that's there. Yep. Yeah, I mean Matthew moves from one genre to another. I mean he's <laughs> yeah. quoting the Old Testament. He's uh, sh- he's showing the antitypical fulfillment of the typological. Uh, references to Jesus in the old. Yeah, it's amazing. I saw I saw one study. UBS did a study of um, biblical scholars from conservative to liberal, and and had all of them say how many allusions or quotations are there in Matthew to the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and then they took just the ones that everyone agreed on, and it was over two hundred and forty. Yeah, oh, that's insane. It's remarkable. Yeah. yeah. And it, so, so that raises the whole question: What do we mean by fulfillment? Yeah, it's just uh, one of his favorite words. Yeah, it's it's because that can mean a variety of different mm-hmm. things. Um, and then when you get to the parables, for example, the parables are a beast unto themselves. They are uh, honestly. Uh, uh, Klein Snodgrass has written um, probably the most comprehensive treatment of parables. It's called Stories with Intent. Mm-hmm. I know I only know Klein basically because I went to Israel with him way. Oh, wow. A long time ago, back yeah. in 84, I think it was. But it's a massive book that treats the parables. He does a great job. Robert Stein, who used to teach at Southern Seminary Louisville, has written a great, uh, much, much shorter book on the parables. But the debate has been for so long, um, do parables only have one point? Mm-hmm. And we're, it's a mistake to try to make sense of all the peripheral details. Right. And some scholars insist that's a hard and fast rule. And others say, well, maybe not. Maybe. I mean, for example, the 
you know, even whether a story is a parable. Is it Luke 16 and uh, the rich man and Lazarus? Mm. Uh, you know, the rich man dies and goes to Hades. Lazarus dies and goes to the Abraham's bosom. You know, how much of that is to be pressed literally? Right. Is it a parable? Is it an actual story where these real humans? Mm. And people point out, well, it, if it's a parable, it's the only parable in the entire New Testament that named, literally mm. named somebody, Lazarus. Right. And all the other parables, nobody's has a per- yeah. personal name. The father, the son, the servant, right. the sower. Yeah. So how much of a parable is historical? How much, is there allegory in the parables? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, and then you have, for example, um, I mean, this would take us so far afield, but uh, perhaps the most famous uh, parable of all, which is the parable of the prodigal son. Right. And we read it, as I do, and I see it as a story about, you know, rebellion and sinful self-indulgence and a father's incredible love and how he goes overboard and ignores all social custom and decorum to Mm -hmm. shower his son with forgiveness. Well, you read N.T. Wright, and he says, no, this whole thing's about the story of Israel. Mm -hmm. And it's Israel is the prodigal son going into exile. And coming back, um, you know, it's the... uh, uh, the father is it obviously represents God, and the older brother of the Pharisees, the religious establishment, and he reads it in an entirely different way. He doesn't right. see it as primarily about issues of forgiveness and love and whatever. He sees it as a, a way of describing hi- Israel's history and how God is now bringing about uh, you know the restoration of those who were in exile. Right. So, which happens like kind of probably less more less debatedly in some parables, like the parable of the tenants. Right, yeah, which is sure. about these. You know, there's this master who has this vineyard, and he leaves and leaves people in charge of it, and they just keep killing his servants. And he finally sends his son, and they kill him too. And he's right. like, "You've been killing the prophets up to this point." So that parable is about Israel's history, and so you can't just get one rubric and just you know say they're all about this or they all point to this. It's just yeah, yeah. it is, and that's why I encourage people don't just read the synoptics. Read also John. Oh, definitely, and. Uh, but I, I'm preaching through John, and I think, why in the world would they not have included the story about Nicodemus? Because mm. they don't say much about the new birth right? In, in the synoptics. Or why would they not have included the story about the Samaritan woman at the well? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many, um, that to, get, to get a more comprehensive, complete portrayal of the life of Jesus, you have to read them all. And then, of course, you never forget what John said at the end of his, of his gospel, you know, if Jesus did far, far more things than have been written here. You know, mm-hmm. Things all the books of the world couldn't contain. Well, granted, that's hyperbole, right? But it makes a point. Yes. Um, what, one thing that I'm just kind of like struggling with—or not really struggling with—but just trying to get handholds on is, and I know it. I think it, we've dug ourselves too deep of a hole in a good way that we've said the Gospels are too robust, too theologically significant, and too diverse in genre to give one simple interpretation rubric for. Yes. There's not one general rule we can just fly over it like a banner and say, do this and you'll succeed in reading the Gospels. I mean, prayer maybe, you know, but other than that. Um, but one thing maybe to think about is if we can think about approach in, in how maybe we should try to approach the Gospels. Um, like I'll suggest one bad one and one good one okay. and, and maybe, and bad's the wrong word. Maybe just like insufficient is a better word. So the, the insufficient way is I'm going to read the gospels in order to see how to live like Jesus. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's one approach that a lot of people take where, 
okay, Jesus spoke this way and healed this way. And of course, we Jesus is our example. And But that's not the only thing that gospels are, sure. the Gospels are accomplishing. That's a bit myopic. Um, and then, so maybe we could address that. And then the good way that hopefully one of the, one of the good ways I, I find it is reading it in the context of Israel's story and of what God's been doing as grand narrative of salvation throughout history is whenever the gospels quote the old Testament, pay attention, you know, know your Torah, know your prophets, know sure. your Psalms, because they are going to be doing in just a few words, way more than what those words by themselves indicate because they're pulling on a large history and you need to know those stories that they're bringing in. And so I know one way to read your gospels is with the Old Testament in your brain and in your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, those are kind of my two insufficient and maybe a decent approach. Oh, I ways. think that's great. I okay. think that's great. Yep. Um, you know, it does raise the question of the legitimacy of what is now kind of it's kind of disappeared is what would Jesus do? The WWJD. Right. Um, and on one hand, I think it, it's good. It was a reminder. Hey, we, how did Jesus respond to his critics? Right. Uh, how did he uh, endure uh, persecution and suffering without retaliation? Mm. Uh, how did he demonstrate love and so on? But we also have to remember that there are things that he did that have, as you have kind of indicated, redemptive historical significance that go far beyond just setting us an ethical example. Right. Uh, the classic a good illustration among many would be Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4 responding to Satan's temptations. Yes. Well, when you read the, 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 the text that Jesus quotes when he responds to Satan and you realize that these were all taken from what was expected of Israel during their wilderness wandering. And so you see that what's happening is what Israel as God's quote-unquote son failed to do on its divine mission, Jesus as the true son now is accomplishing. He is in effect corporate Israel in personal form. He is the fulfillment, the true embodiment of what God intended the nation as a whole to be. So that you, you got to keep those things in mind when you're looking at those mm-hmm. those sorts of stories. Can I can I sure. can I lean in there? Because yeah. that's that's a big one, especially for um, you know the way that uh, our ministry spoken gospel talks about so many different things is we're, when we are going to exegete um, you know Matthew uh, four uh, and we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. Uh, we're mainly going to focus on that broader story. Uh, and and how Jesus is the consummate Israel, the consummate Moses, who succeeds where they failed in order to bring us into the promised land uh, permanently, which we always failed uh, to enter before. Uh, and so, uh, but when I hear Matthew four preached often, it's how to fight sin, yeah, how to how to how to avoid temptation, how to fight the devil. Um, is it is it an either or thing? Is no. it a both and? Help help me navigate it, that. It is a both and. Great. It is a both and because. What do we see? We see Jesus appealing to the authority of God's word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see Satan distorting the meaning of God's word. Mm-hmm. Jesus correcting him. Furthermore, and this is something a lot of people miss, but you see it in Luke more than you in Matthew. In Luke four one, um, it says Jesus, being full of the Spirit, was being led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Mm. And then after it is after his uh, temptation, it says he was in the power of the Spirit going to Galilee and there preaching. Um, so the point being, do we have a model or an example that Jesus provided us for how we're to face the devil and temptation in our life? And the answer is yes, mm-hmm. by being full of the Spirit and subject to his guidance, by utilizing God's Word and not drawing upon our own wisdom, uh, by depending upon God uh, in, in a moment-by-moment expression. Jesus did it by fasting. 
So yeah, it's a both end. Um, and I, I think that's a mistake people want to make. They think because they see something different or new, they think that that immediately rules out what they had traditionally been taught mm-hmm. about uh, about what Jesus was doing. And and again, um, there are there are things like uh, when Jesus told his disciples, "Only go to the house of Israel." Right. Well, you know we we take the gospel to the nations, not mm-hmm. just Israel, but to all Gentiles. Why? Well, because Jesus in Matthew twenty eight basically reversed his policy because he said the time for the exclusivity of taking this good news of the kingdom to the Jews has now passed. Now it goes to all nations, all peoples. Same thing in Luke 24. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I I think it's helpful to hear that, um, that it's it's not a this or the other, um, but I think it's also good to to try to broaden our view as we go through different passages in the Gospels to to not only say, um, man, like, who was Jesus and how did he live? How did he have compassion for people that led him to heal? How did he listen to the voice of the Father in moments of stillness and prayer? Mm-hmm. How, how, how did he fight temptation and sin? How did he rebuke uh, religious hypocrisy and, and say, like, how can that be a moral principle for us today and a theological principle for us today? But then also, what was Jesus accomplishing in all of those same situations that was bringing fulfillment to this grand drama that God has been acting out on the stage of history revealed in the scriptures. Yeah. So I think it's a it's great to do a both and. I think that's I think that's awesome. Um, just one final thing. I know we're just about out of time. I just want to mention one other thing that's just a singular example of why it's important to ask the question, who wrote this book? Mm. Uh, the question of authorship is important, for example, in Mark's gospel. Most likely, uh, Peter was his spiritual mentor, as mm-hmm. Paul was to Timothy. And it's only in Mark's gospel that on the day of the resurrection that the angel says to the women, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And you think, okay, now Matthew doesn't include Peter. Why does Mark single out Peter? And it's I think, again, it's because Peter likely, having shared in a very personal way to Mark, his spiritual son, how he betrayed Jesus, and probably how he felt unbelievably disqualified. And surely Jesus wouldn't appear to him, only Mm. the others. And the angel goes out of his way that Mark records, go tell his disciples, oh yeah, make sure Peter hears this news. Jesus wants to meet him in Galilee too. That's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. I, I think I often don't even read with authorship in mind all the time. And it's hard to do. But uh, I think doing that reveals these amazing little moments yeah. that the the person they these people li- a lot of these people lived with Jesus or or were sourced by people who lived with Jesus mm. um, and and like I think John and Matthew you know would would have lived with Jesus if we were going to talk about authorship yep. real quick John and Matthew would have been disciples of Jesus and then um, Mark would have been a disciple of Peter who right. who was with Jesus and then what about Luke it, where, like what how's he fit into this whole story of authorship and well, you know, most likely Luke is one of close, Paul's closest companions, mm-hmm. um, but we don't know how much Luke would have known of the historical Jesus in, during his lifetime. I, um, I'm not even real sure. I'd have to go look into that. I'm, I think he probably well could have. But, you know, Luke also says, I've drawn from multiple sources to write my gospel account. Right. Uh, he mentions that in the, in the opening chapters of Luke and then also in the opening cha- uh, chapter of Acts. So um, 
Yeah, it is important to understand who has written each of these documents and their perspective. And I and I would just say this one other thing. Oftentimes, and I mentioned this earlier, but I'll bring it up again. Oftentimes, evangelicals think that the inspiration of these books, the way in which God breathed them out, uh, was was like unto dictation. Mm-hmm. You know, you or you know today. We can all do it. We speak into our phone a text message. Right. My wife just taught me how to do that recently. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I don't have to type these slow little. Yep. She says, no, push this little microphone and then speak it. And they have this idea that that's what God did to the biblical authors. Mm. And they don't realize how, yes, everything they wrote, every jot and tittle was precisely what God wanted recorded. But he did it not independently of, but through their unique personalities. In light of the relationships they had, like in the case of Mark and his relationship with Peter, um, and you know, just some of the things that they will include, some of the things they exclude, um, how do you account for that? Just like, like I said, the fact that uh, Mark doesn't say anything um, about Jesus or Peter walking on the water, why would he do that? Mm. Um, and so those are the things we need to keep in mind, that there's a very human dimension to the in, in, inspirational process, but but obviously God secured at every step definitely um, the ultimate outcome of what He wanted in the text. Okay, well, you opened up one last can of worms that I've got to address now. That you talked about dictation. What about the words of Jesus? Were they word for word recorded? Yeah. Or yeah. what's going on there? Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, here, fancy Latin phrase. <laughs> I knew it was coming. Ipsissima <laughs> vox or ipsissima verba. Yep. And it simply means uh, ipsissima verba, the very words. Ipsissima vox, the very voice. Mm-hmm. Now, do we on multiple occasions have the actual literal words that came out of the mouth of Jesus? Yeah, yes. we do. Right. But in other instances, what an author will do is He'll take maybe a sermon that Jesus preached or a story, and he'll recast it, as it were, in, uh, in, in slightly different terms. That doesn't mean that the, the voice of Jesus is lost, because the, the point Jesus was, Jesus was making in both instances is the same, but it may not be in the form of the very words he spoke. It will be an, an encapsulized, summarized, paraphrased, sometimes even expanded. Yep. Uh, some of the the gospel writers will actually expand and elaborate beyond what Jesus uh, seems to have been saying. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a very tricky question, and it's hard sometimes to discern it. But um, what we what do we have to remember is God preserved for us the voice of His Son. Mm-hmm. In other words, He preserved for us the truth that was being expressed in specific words. But he didn't always preserve the words themselves because there's another thing you got to remember. There were no quote marks right. in, in, the, in the Greek text. Uh, Greek, Koine Greek did not use them. Mm-mm. And so even knowing where Jesus is speaking and where the, for example, you read in John chapter 3, after the story with Nicodemus, we really don't know. Who's, when he stops talking, when, when stops John takes by, over. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, John 3.16. Who some, said it? <laughs> some think Jesus said it. Some think John said it. Um, so yeah, that that issue is a very controversial debate. And, yeah, but it's I just, important to yeah, keep in mind. Definitely, I've wanted to touch on it because I think it's I think it's just something to keep in mind. And you know, the same thing happens in Acts. We're not getting full sermons. Oh yeah, you know, we're getting an encapsulation, right? Which doesn't mean we've lost the meaning. 
but it means that we've gotten exactly what God wanted us to have and what he's preserved for us and in it, that moment. And, and again, and it doesn't mean we should ignore the, the words in which that meaning is expressed. That's really good. Uh, yep. That's why it's important as teachers and preachers, let's talk about this phrase. Let's talk about this, this preposition. Let's talk about this verb because um, in preserving the meaning or the voice, um, it is done by means of the words that God um, secured for us through the uh, the human author, and so we need to pay close attention to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. I think that whenever I whenever I try to take something that I use a lot of words to say and say it in fewer words, every word becomes more important mm-hmm. because I'm being more precise and exact in what I'm trying to say. And so a preposition could literally change the whole meaning of what a hundred words would have said. But like as we condense meaning, we, we don't need to become less concerned with which particular words we're using. We need to become more concerned because we know that they are they were chosen to be very precise and to, to, to communicate exact points that were being summarized. So yeah. I think it's good. All right. There's so much more with, with, with the Gospels, uh, but it's been fun to scratch the surface and, um, and talk about some of the, the bigger issues. Um, so hopefully this has been helpful for you guys listening. Um, we're going to wrap up next week with our How to Read the Bible series on the epistles. So uh, if you want to learn how to read letters that we don't write anymore, you can, you can tune in next week. Uh, it'll be great. Uh, so thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchOKC. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.